This is the Concrete Conservative with Ed Vidal and yours truly, Mac on the Rock. We have a really cool special guest today, and we got really lucky to have met him, David Bossy of the Trump campaign. And I'm really excited that, that he will be given we'll be giving him a call, and we're going to be talking about everything that is Trump, 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 Trump. Mr. Vidal, I get full credit for this interview, don't I? Absolutely. Because it's one of those things, you know, where... Well, well, you know, here at the Concrete Conservatives on uh, WSQF 94.5 FM in Key Biscayne, where we provide you with the evacuation route from socialist nonsense, we're a team effort, and you identified him. You're like Saul Alinsky. You identified him, and then we pegged him and called him, and we got a hold of him, so... We yeah, it's one, of, it's one of those things where, you know, you have your antennas up, you know, yep. you're and he basically... And for, what, a fundraiser at the, uh, at the what, Grand Hyatt or Ritz-Carlton here? Well, no, no, he was actually um, meeting. He could have been at a fundraiser because those meetings are usually fundraisers. He was yep. vague about why he was there. Okay. And uh, the truth is he got to meet his wife, his family. He was uh, with another fellow who okay. uh, was sitting there by the bar. And on the pool side. Okay. And I was also by the bar, and we talked. And I just recognized him, and he was very candid. I confessed that I was uh, a a cruiser during the primary, so he'll know that going in. He understood that that meant that, if anything else, we were conservative. Absolutely. So it all started from there. And uh, I said, look, I don't want to ask you a bunch of questions because I'd rather you say it on our show, really. Mm -hmm. And I told him the show, and I told him about the, the... the metamorphosis of why mm-hmm. the show and the station was built, and he was uh, quite interested in that. So it gave us the, you know, it gave us the the bona fides. So yeah, uh, now, I'm really like nervous to call because no. I've never used a digital phone. I've only used an iPhone. Oh darn! You know, it's one of those Get things. Him so we can talk to him. So uh, basically, where's your chief technology officer? Yeah, uh, we need a vice president. Uh, do we have vice president? Uh, uh, no, we don't have vice president. Okay, so, so, uh, hmm. Let's see. What we do need is for you to fill up airtime. Okay. No, no. What well, you need is snurdly. I need a snurdly. So we have a situation where Ed Vidal spends way too much time on the internet. Okay. And he doesn't really know how to fill radio time. Absolutely. So this is this is this is a moment for you to well, shine today, while I dial a phone number. Go ahead. Today we're going to have David Bossy, who is uh, with Citizens United, and one of the things I'm looking forward to asking him is what his response has been to becoming such a hated figure on the on the left. Well, it's not very hard to be hated on well, the left. Well, but see, every time you just I have hear to make sense. The left uh, criticizing Citizens United, they talk about corporate greed and corporate money, but there's plenty of. I guess I got a dollar one, right? See, see what I mean? Uh-oh. I wasn't kidding about this iPhone thing. Yep. So, but the thing, you know, you can't if you you can't criticize corporate greed without criticizing other greed. Like consumers are greedy; they want the best product for the lowest price, so they're greedy. Politicians are greedy. They want your taxes. They want to regulate you. They want campaign contributions. Even Bernie Sanders has three houses. So you got political greed, politicians' greed. Then you have labor unions are very greedy. They want your uh, portion of uh, of your salary as fees. 
and then they push for more and more deals for their uh, uh, senior officers. So it's just a criticized. Is this uh, David Bossy? This is Tim Sullivan. I'm the staff assistant here. See, look, they have a snuggly. We oh don't. My God. You are live on the radio at WSQF Blink Radio in Key Biscayne. We've just met David uh, some time ago, and he promised to speak to us today. Is he available? Let me check. Could you tell me who your name is one more time? Yes, my name is, uh, my non-radio name is Manuel Cambo. WSQF 94.5 FM in Key Biscayne. Radio station, the Concrete Conservative Radio Show. This was, this was uh, basically uh, confirmed that we were going to be speaking to him today. Okay, let me see if he's available. So, you were saying? I'm saying that it's not fair to complain about corporate greed. When, in fact, all sorts of special interests and factions, as Madison would have put it, have, are greedy. And what Madison trusted was for greed to counteract greed. So just complaining about one side, one type of greed is, is really unfair. There's many other types of greed. Uh, like what kind of greed do you have? Well, consumers are greedy. They want... Come on, confess yeah. up. Uh, what kind of greed do attorneys have? Oh, yeah. Uh, attorneys are now accused of being rent seekers. Uh, there's all sorts of. They're greed. also slumlords. No, not not necessarily. Not intrinsically. That, that's a real estate investor. May be a slumlord. Who's but, usually represented by an attorney who evicts people. Or so or you're as guilty as the rest. People, you know, keep him on. Keep him honest. Extend, extend their uh, leases. It depends. They got to pay the rent, right? On who you think that voice is? Uh, that's probably Jack Kerouac. <laughs> He's one of the number one voiceover on answering machines. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I met the uh, the voice for uh, Siri, an really? older lady. What she like? She was an older lady, and uh, uh, she said that she had done it. Um, I think she was in her twenties or thirties, and she was told to just uh, read words, dictionary. And then they put them together. And they barely paid her anything for it. And lo and behold, 20 years later, they use it as a Siri voice. My gosh. So she was underpaid for something that they didn't even know what its use was going to be for. David, this is is, uh, the Concrete Conservatives on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne. Welcome. This is yours truly, Mac on the Rock, who met you at the Ritz-Carlton. Absolutely. How are you, sir? I am well. I am well. Thank you. Yes, and uh, we were... Uh, basically, uh, on pins and needles here on what angle this um, series of conversations was going to transpire, I-, I wanted to start with your book and uh, what is it that you and Lewandowski were able to do, first of all, to, to have the comfort zone to be able to say whatever you want in the book, and what was the real motivation behind the book other than uh, basically getting rid of uh, the aspersions out there that Trump was this and Trump was that. You wanted to obviously explain the real man. Yeah, so, you know, we've, we have, uh, Corey Lewandowski and I have now written uh, two books together. Our, our first one was Let Trump Be Trump, which was the, the, the incredible story of the 2016 campaign, and we did that from really from the inside uh, view of the world. Uh, Corey was the first campaign manager and managed the campaign for uh, about a year, a year and a half, and then I came in and I was the deputy campaign manager at the end. So, so Corey and I wrote that book so that we could really uh, tell the story of that improbable 
uh, phenomenal campaign that uh, that allowed Donald Trump to to win and, and get into the White House. And then, you know, a year later, we wrote uh, Trump's enemies uh, because we saw what uh, really the, what we call the deep state, what those bad actors inside the government. Uh, whether it was the intelligence agencies or uh, and, and numerous ones of those, but uh, or the FBI and the DOJ uh, were doing to really undermine this president, uh, really trying to make uh, you know the presidency and uh, his election invalid. Whether it's uh, those FBI agents who we now know them by names, uh, Strzok and Page and Comey and Baker and others. Um, you know they were bad actors, and they and they set out to destroy this president, uh, and that's really what uh, what we were able to to cover in the in, in the second book, Trump's Enemies. And and and, and you know it, it's been very educational when you're writing a book. You you get to write the story you want, but you're also learning things all along the way. So we we really were we're grateful, um, and uh, uh, you know he he um, the president deserves to have people out there who want to help him with his agenda. He is fighting this fight all by himself, it seems, every day. And it, so it really does. Difficult. Yeah, it really does that the conservative movement doesn't really have yeah. the gumps to defend their president. David, you know? Do you think that any of those bad agents will be held to account, and when? Well, we certainly hope so. We're, we, you know, we're expecting the inspector general's report. We certainly have an attorney general now um, that... Uh, is really dedicated to making sure that those bad actors, whether they're in the FBI, the DOJ, or anywhere else, are held to account. And I think that, uh, you know, I've been disappointed over the last couple of years with non-prosecutions of, of, of some of these folks. But, uh, you know, I think, I think this attorney general is determined uh, to make sure that the American people have full confidence um, in the the mechanisms of government, and so that if you are inside the government and you do something wrong, that, that you're going to be held accountable for it. And I think that that is that's a little bit different. And this president is 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 just dedicated to making sure that the look. The, the, he says it all the time, but the, you know the, the 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 left and the mainstream media don't make it easy on him, and so he tells. The, the stories of what these agents and what the FBI and others that were doing to try to to set him up, to try and, and defeat him in November of 16, and since then to have this really this silent coup uh, that has been going on. And so you, you were, you know, I'm hopeful that the Attorney General and the actually the Inspector General of the Department of Justice comes out with a report here in the next month or so that is. Um, that's really telling, that educates the American people, but also makes criminal referrals uh, to, uh, to to the Department of Justice for prosecution on any host of issues that could be up there. And I think that that will help the, uh, the American people realize that the president, when he's out there talking about these things, you know, is telling them um, the truth and is telling them what they need to know. And I think that's part of what, you know, part of what's missing in this narrative is the mainstream media continuously lies uh, in order to cover up these things. David, how far up in the Obama administration do you think that the wrongdoing went? Um, well, it's not just me. Um, I'll tell you, yeah. I interviewed Corey and I interviewed the president in the Oval Office for the book Trump's Enemies, and there's a there's a, a section in the book that is the um, unedited 
transcript of that interview. Um, but the president, when we asked him, do you think Barack Obama knew the president of the United States says yes, right. uh, that he uh, had to know because this president understands how uh, intelligence works. He gets his uh, daily intelligence brief. He he understands what Obama would and wouldn't know. He understands the com conversations and the communication you have with your attorney general, with your national security advisor, with the director of the FBI, and he sees exactly um, you know, what Obama would have known. And, and, and so when we asked him that question, he unequivocally uh, said that he believes that Barack Obama knew. And also Barack expanded what the security state was allowed to uh, do under his administration so that they were free to expose people and uh, wiretap people and, of course, always foreign foreign uh, players so that they can get the American, uh, the, uh, the American citizens involved in these conversations. Well, before you were an author, you were a filmmaker, I guess, and you got uh, your case up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Maybe you can tell our audience, why does the left hate you so much? <laughs> well, you know, we wear that as a badge of honor. When when the liberals uh, think you're doing something wrong, uh, you know, I take that as I know I'm doing something right. But uh, we, we wanted to make a film. Um, you know, our company, Citizens United Productions, has made uh, 25 or 26 films over the last 10 years or so. And so we've been pretty uh, good at it, and, and we really enjoy the work. It, you get to tell a long-format political story, you know, uh, you know, on on and through through film, and it's really a powerful tool, and it's not used enough. But Michael Moore, uh, if you remember, uh, in 2004, had a film called Fahrenheit 9/11, yep. and it was it was really powerful. I mean, I totally disagreed with the premise of the film, with the with the politics of, of the film, and he wanted to defeat George Bush for his re-election in 2004. And uh, I looked at that film and I said, my goodness, we need to be, the conservatives need to be using the power of documentary film. The power of film is, is so important. And, and so that's what we did. And we started making films right then and there in 2004. So in 2007, when everybody uh, in America uh, knew that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee, uh, you know, except for Barack Obama, uh, you, you know, he, he, we made a film on Hillary Clinton called Hillary the Movie uh, because we felt that it would be good for the general election to help defeat her. Uh, and, of course, she lost uh, the nomination to Barack Obama that year. Yeah. But our film, um, went, after we made it, was not going to be allowed to be shown on television or in, and our advertisements for it weren't going to be allowed because it was going to be a violation of McCain-Feingold. Uh, and we thought that why could Michael Moore do it you know, in 2004, back then it was just a couple of years earlier. Uh, and why couldn't we? Why couldn't we do it? And it was it was very simple. It was uh, Michael Moore had the media exemption, uh, which we did not. Um, and because he worked for a big fancy film company in Hollywood, he automatically got it. And so uh, we went to the we went to the FEC and said we should get the media exemption. They said no. We went to court. Uh, the, and, and argued that we should get the media exemption. They said no. We went to the appeals court. They said no. We we appealed it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And in 2010, it'll be 10 years this January. It'll be our anniversary. But Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission is a, a deeply important First Amendment case uh, that allows that really that victory leveled the playing field for conservatives, uh, and it really allowed. 
us to compete with the unions and the left that had, right. you know, the George Soros uh, on one hand and, and the unions on the other, and we were just outmanned and outgunned, and uh, it, politically speaking. And and that is uh, that's one of the things that Citizens United, our victory, was able to do is create the opportunities for conservatives to win. And obviously we won the House back in 2010. We, we Our case was deter- decided in January, and in that November we won the House back, and then a few years later, we won the Senate back, and and then, of course, in 2016, we won the White House back. So we 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 we're very proud of the Citizens United case and and the um, uh, what the case means to the conservative movement uh, across the country. Yeah, we agree, and we were just talking before you called that um, it, the, the leftists are always complaining about corporate greed, but it's not just corporations. They're you know labor unions are greedy. Uh, pl- uh, people like George Soros are greedy. Politicians are greedy. So just you know, having this idea that only a a, a media, an authorized media person, is is exempt or is protected by the First Amendment shows you how bad the McCain-Feingold Act was. Well, that's right. And we just so we just said, well, you know what? We're not going to agree to that, and we're not going to be pushed around. So we took him to court, and we won. Okay. So what do you expect for this uh, coming election for next year? I mean. I hear all the, you know, the, the, the left is trying to come up with this fake recession. Uh, they've run out on the Russia collusion. Now they're trying to the white supremacy angle. The New York Times is supposed to be, uh, has a sixteen nineteen project. What do you make of all this? You know, it's, 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 it's really, um, these folks are so, uh, the left is so deranged and delusional. They'll do whatever it takes, in their opinion, uh, and they're getting more and more desperate in order to defeat Donald Trump. They hate this man viscerally. They hate him uh, more than they can stand. And so they, they of course, tr- uh, you know, trumped up this uh, charge of uh, Russia collusion and collaboration. And, and of course, that was nothing to that. But for two years, uh, more than two years, the American yeah. people heard nothing but Russia collusion. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think course, that helped the Democrats uh, in the midterms, for sure. Yes, of course. And by the way, they won the House of the Representatives back built on that lie. Yes. We lost so many races so closely yes. that that Russian narrative had impact. Yes. Uh, and well, so we also, won the House back on a lie. Well, we also had a lot of incumbents not running again. 45 or so. The yeah, total and, and, yeah, 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 well, guys, we, we do have, every two years you have retirements. We have a spate of retirements right now that are, that are going on, and people are talking about, woe is me. Every two years we go through the same thing. And I do agree with you um, that we had more um, than normal last uh, in 2018. But that Russian narrative, that lie that they perpetrated on the American people and the mainstream media went along with it, that had a huge impact on turnout, yeah. on the energy right. that, that was built by the Democrats and that lie they, uh, that they uh, continue to tell. And so, in my opinion, we would have won a lot more races, uh, including potentially being able to beat Donna Shalala down there in Miami. Right. Oh, that was a tremendous thing. Yeah, yeah, that was that was terrible. Well, we're, we're, we have a couple of candidates trying to. One's going after Donna Shalala, and she's running again, Maria yeah, Elvira. And another one going against. She's uh, tremendous Moore. too, by the way. She's a very dynamic. We know her well. She used to live here in this community in Key Biscayne, yep. and uh, we got we're to know her. To have her on the show. Yeah, and uh, she is uh, graceful. She's uh, obviously got a, a, a presence for the camera. She's been in TV all her life. She's a, her father was a, a recognized uh, 
a journalist out here, and my father knew him very well. Uh, they both. Uh, but this time she's going to be a Trumpista. Because last time, yeah, yeah, out. yeah. She didn't, uh, she you know, she, to come out as a Trumpist. We call that around here, I guess we call this nationally. She, she didn't kiss the ring, and she yeah, should have. Well, it's Trump's party today, so. yeah. And no, Carlos Cubello had that same problem. He didn't want to kiss the ring because <laughs> yeah. he was a Jeb Busher, you know, couldn't get over it. He lost, but there's a very dynamic young woman who's uh, running for his seat. So, uh, the, the incumbent congresswoman there, Debbie Mercasel Powell, is an actual uh, uh, sponsor of the Green New Deal. So, well, I think we I think we make the mistake. I wanted to ask David this: Don't you think we make the mistake of giving the Green New Deal credence by repeating it all the time as if it had any kind of fat in it? I mean, it's a completely made up story tale kind of bill that never goes anywhere and that's never been sponsored and never uh, they no, put it up for vote. Eighty nine sponsors in the House. Yeah, but it's never going to pass the House and it's right. never going to pass the Senate. But then, no, I understand what you're saying. It doesn't really have anything in it. Us talking about it, we give it credibility. You know, we need to educate the American people as to how, you know, just off the rails these people are. I mean, you have this um, this young girl um, who is the face of the environmental movement right now just leaving on a sailboat today, a carbon-neutral sailboat trip just going to take two weeks across the Atlantic so that she can come and speak to the U.N. about global warming. Um, <laughs> you, you know, look, I'm not going to take my advice from a 14-year-old, I'll be honest with you, yeah. uh, about much. I have, I've, I've, I have four children, and three of them are teenagers, and I can assure you I'm not taking advice from um, them on, on, on any type of policy d- development. But, mm-hmm. look, we, we are in a crisis, uh, you know, an existential crisis in this country because of the unhinged left. And you look at this Antifa group that is absolutely violent and militant uh, and needs to be, by the president, named a terrorist, a domestic terrorist organization. And then the police will have powers that they currently uh, don't have. And I think that, that that is very important, and I hope the president does that very soon, because there's a lot of people getting hurt out, out there in the streets just trying to, you know, whether they're walking down the street wearing a you know, a Make America Great Again ad, or they're taking, you know, they're using their First Amendment rights uh, to participate in any type of a rally or protest, and they're getting their heads uh, bashed in, and they're getting attacked, whether it's women, children, it doesn't matter, and discriminately, these people are, you know, they they, they, they're, they got hoods on and, and, and face masks, and they're using, uh, you know, weapons. I, I just think the police uh, need to go in there and stomp that out. Well, Antifa is for the Democrat Party today what the Ku Klux Klan was for a hundred years, the terrorist paramilitary wing of the party. Correct. Uh, both of the Democrat Party, I might it right. Yes, I mean, both. that's the thing, that the, the KKK was a Democrat Party right. organization Absolutely. for a long time, and, and many of their elected members came from their ranks. And so, you know, the American people don't realize that. So basically, they're out of their cotton-picking minds. You can say that in this show. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, that doesn't go over too well these days. If I had said that today, I'd be, uh, I'd be out on the street. But I'm know, going to use it all the time. The, 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 the political... The political correctness is also part of the problem. But look, this president doesn't put up with any of that, and that's why he's going to win. And and if you look at these Democrat candidates who are, uh, you know, trying to run 
just um, you know to the left of each other and further and further to the left. They're they're alienating the American people when it comes to the general election because everything they say, all the policies that they uh, you know are are trying to support right now are going to come back to haunt them when it comes time uh, to run. Uh, you know, in the general election, should they be the nominee? And I think that, you know, that, that this is still a wide-open race for the Democrats. I think that sleepy Joe Biden is still the odds-on favorite um, uh, because a lot of Democrats, all they care about is winning. They just care about defeating this president. And, and by doing so, uh, you know, they're, they're supporting him in order to give themselves the best chance. I, I think that Donald Trump's going to be able to beat no matter who the nominee is because their field is just so, so pathetic. Yeah, they're very, they're very vanilla. Wait, but what do you make of all these polls showing, uh, you know, they're talking to registered voters showing uh, Trump trailing. Well, we went through this already. We went through polls in 2016. There was a bunch yeah. of malarkey, well, all they're, of it. They're, reg- they're looking at registered voters, and it's still way before the election. Well, so. Right. Look, it's not... It, it, that's a great question. And, and look... You know, there's a difference between registered voters and likely voters. When people are looking at polling data, if it says if it's a poll of red of registered voters, don't read any further. It literally doesn't matter. The the data points have to be that it is a cross section demographically of the region of the city of the area of the state, wherever whatever the poll is for. But it also has to be. Um, of likely voters and those likely voters you have to take it from the voter rolls when you're trying to create your sample you have to actually call people who did vote in the prior elections whether you're trying to whether it's a Republican primary poll and you have to call people who actually voted in the primaries you know in the previous year two years four years whatever it might be that's the only way you're going to get because those there's a huge swath of the American people who do not vote and so it, it is it's unfortunate and I wish more people did but that's the way it works and polling data is only as good as your sample now in the polling data I want the audience to know the the polling data only shows you that they voted not who they voted for that's correct. So, and it, does it give any other type of demographic? Yeah, uh, let me just say this. If you are in a state, and most states are, where it's registered, you're registered by party, Republican or Democrat, and they're looking to have, and they're going to do a primary ballot test. So let's say Ron DeSantis is running, uh, you know, in a primary for governor last year. Uh, you know, you're only going to go to the Republican Party, uh, Republican uh, registered voters who voted in the prior primaries and so that's going to give you only republicans and that's and that's how it should be now if you go to the general you're going to be taking a sample that's going to be equal amount republicans equal amount democrats and if your state has independence you're going to have independence in there to the percentage that that state normally represents whether it's five six seven eight percent independence uh and so you you really the, the pollsters today are very good my 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 my, to go to your point earlier is we did go through this in 2016 where the polling data was just fundamentally wrong and that's because they haven't been able to figure out since Brexit uh, over in England where they had what we called the undervote uh, where it was that silent group of people who either lied or didn't get polled or they lied to pollsters and they just told them what they wanted to hear but those folks uh, 
most were out there in 2016 uh, in the United States, and they didn't vote, uh, or they didn't tell pollsters how they were going to vote, or they lied. Uh, and and so it is a um, it, it it's really remarkable experience. We saw it first. I, you know, I saw it firsthand in the polling data inside the campaign. Our data was different than. Than, the mo than most of the mainstream media. And we, we knew we, it was going to be close, and we knew we were going to win certain states that the Democrats thought they were going to win. Um, and so, look, we're, gonna, we're doing it again right now. You look at the president at 38 39% of the vote, uh, you know, in some of these polls. I just don't see that as being accurate. I mean, he is going to get in the mid-40s because that's pretty much what he got in 16. Uh, we need to get that same level or more, uh, and he's going to get reelected. It's, it's so so these polls today don't have. And again, a big point is once you have a Democrat that's defined, that you know who it's going to be, right. it changes the election. Right now, you just have Donald Trump versus a generic, what we call a generic ballot, uh, against any Democrat who's nominated. And I think, you know, there's a big difference between Joe Biden. Joe Biden's policies and and Bernie Sanders' policies, and I think that that is going to be, you know, the difference of who the nominee is is, is going to make a big difference. Now, uh, moving over to Texas, there's a lot of talk about uh, Republicans losing Texas. Uh, Alan West joining the the top of the uh, top of the party, uh, running as uh, party chairman. You think that uh, will save Texas for the Republicans? Well, look, I, you know, I don't know that any one person is going to save Texas. You know, it is going to be, uh, you know, we need uh, more registered Republicans in Texas. We, we need to stop. Uh, maybe we need to ball, build, build a wall between Texas and California because there's so many Californians moving to Texas and they're bringing their liberal uh, voting record with them. And that's the problem. I mean, you've got the demographics of the state are changing. Um, and so, you know, it's a... Um, uh, it is a problem uh, that Texas is changing, but I think that Texas is going to be in our column uh, come 2020. But it is, it's going to take a lot of work. And, uh, you know, the governor's terrific. Uh, the senators are great. Uh, and Donald Trump's going to win Texas. I don't think that that's going to be on the table, but I think that's another place that the Democrats want to make Donald Trump spend time and money instead of other places. Now, can, uh, can Trump... Uh, surprise us all by luring the 18 to 25 crowd that really thinks it's cool to support Donald Trump. I think that that might be a, a hidden phenomenon. Yeah, who do you think is going to be his uh, put him over the top in 20? What, what you mean what, what kind of age group, what yeah. bracket? What I mean, it would be surprising if these young characters who are normally liberal, oh, I've, heard, I've heard that, uh, but it's be, kind of popular. Maybe it's kind of cool to be a Trumpster now. The, the, the younger folks today are being sold a bill of goods by the Democrats. It's all about, you know, what we can give you, what you can get for free. And that's unfortunate because that's, you know, at some point in time, you run out of spending other people's money. Uh, and so that that's the millennial problem that we have right now. And I think that that's going to continue. Uh, and, and you see a lot of those folks energized by the left. Uh, but I think that there's a silent group that's enormous of, of Republicans that need to be turned out. We don't spend enough time and energy on the 18 to 30-year-old vote from a Republican standpoint. Um, as far as the African-American community is concerned, Donald Trump got 6% of the vote uh, in 2016. Now he'll get 16%. Pardon me? I, I agree with Candace Owens that he's going to get 10% more and win it. Well, if he, gets, if he doesn't get 10% more, he just needs to get 
percent total. He had six six percent in in 2016. If he goes to ten percent um, in 2020, guaranteed mortal lock on re-election. He yeah. did not lose, uh, and and that's very important. And and look, you look at what he's done for the African American family across the country. Doesn't matter where you are. The economic prosperity that this administration has brought you, that President Trump has brought you, is tremendous. It has affected – you look at the African-American unemployment rate, is at the lowest in, his, in history. Um, the, the wages are going up, and you, you look at uh, things like that affect the African-American community, and it's been talked about a lot, is the criminal justice reform package that this president has put, signed, uh, for, you know, really forced through and signed. And that's bringing back a lot of families and giving a lot of people a second chance that is, you know, really, uh, you know, a, a predominantly African-American uh, problem uh, historically. So I think that that is very, very important. And those are the types of policies that are going to get you – um, you know, uh, the attention of the African-American community. And I think, look, that's the reason. They see him making these inroads, which is why they've gone from Russia to racism. They have to stop right. and stem the tide of what he's been able to do, those inroads that he's been able to make. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, the reason why I asked about the young youngsters is because we're very supportive here on the station uh, with Turning Point USA, and we've had the opportunity of meeting Charlie and sure. Candace. Charlie's great. And our local uh, affiliate uh, member here is a girl named Driana Sixto, who uh, was Miss Hialeah here as a youngster. And so we've had her uh, physically in the show uh, with us. So we, we want to see them succeed. And we want to, the best way to have them uh, show their, their prowess is for that millennial group to actually vote for Trump. I know that my daughter just sent me a text. Uh, she's turning 18 on September the 5th. And she already sent me the text on uh, of the the, re- the reply from the elections uh, online service that she's registered a Republican. So I'm having a good week. <laughs> yeah, you are. Yeah, that's great. Yes, and uh, my son is also a Republican. Now, uh, there's there's another issue that uh, the Republicans I don't think sell enough, which is the power of getting rid of the individual mandate in Obamacare. Uh, that should be given uh, a huge. Uh, kudos on the part of case on that that could knock out Obamacare. Yeah, and it's at the Supreme Court right now. It's going to be heard in the next session, so we'll see what happens with that. I mean, look, this president has made a you know concerted effort to you know get rid of Obamacare, and you saw that John McCain, you know, obviously a couple of years ago now. Uh, yeah, his famous thumbs down. Yeah. yeah, that famous thumbs down. You would think Roberts is going to change its tune now? I think. Uh, well, we'll see. But the Texas case is a good one, and and you know we'll see we'll see if it uh, we'll see if it has any you know we'll we'll see what 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 the what the nine justices do. We'll, we'll, we won't yeah. put it all on one guy. But we'll, I'm sure Ted wants know, to be <laughs> the majority. It doesn't matter who. Yeah, it definitely. This case will definitely call Roberts bluff. I think that's right. I yeah. think that's right. Sure. Hey guys, I got to go. I'm okay. sorry. I I, I got no, another show you. right. Well, on. Th- uh, thank you for keeping your promise here on the Concrete Conservative. Uh, it was uh, quite an honor to speak with you. No, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on any time you want. Just give a call, and, and, and I'd love to jump on it with you again. Yeah, thank I want you, you to text much. me next time you're at the Ritz-Carlton, okay? <laughs> I'll do that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, that was, uh, uh, that was our thrill of, of our history. From Citizens United. Yes, man. That, uh, that really, uh, how would I say, that solidifies the concrete in our Concrete Conservative show. A bona fide, true blue there's one question I failed to ask him, What's that? and uh, not a question. It was actually something a uh, message I want to send to Lewandowski, who 
Uh, I was hoping that he's looking to run for uh, Senate in New Hampshire, Lewandowski. Well, my well, the butting heads with him at a Trump rally is what I wanted to talk to about, and I wanted okay. David to uh, remind Lewandowski I'm the fella who butted heads with him, um, basically I defending. Run over some uh, woman reporter. Nah, it, w- it was uh, up in Palm Beach, and the Trump you know landed his helicopter in the in an amphitheater area there. It was quite a quite a, a thrill to see to realize, oh my God, we've just been run over again. And I was there defending uh, the turf of the national spokesperson T, uh, uh, Steve Lonigan, and uh, Lewandowski got in the Lonigan's face, and I had been yeah when during the campaign I wanted to. So are you going to go up to New Hampshire and volunteer for Lewandowski's Senate race? Well, you know, maybe this, maybe if I would have uh, addressed this to uh, David, no, uh, no. maybe it would have turned into something like that, because it would be cool. You know, I've been up, uh, I've been up in the Northeast for primaries for Bush back in uh, the what was it, uh, uh, 88? eighty-eight, giving out oranges in the neighborhood. There it was quite a thrill. Land there early in the morning, walked the neighborhood. Uh, it was um, where in New Hampshire. New Hampshire for the primary, and there was Bush quail stickers on the <laughs> on every orange. And we would hand out the orange. Yeah, we're from Florida. Here's the Florida orange. And we would talk to people. And, uh, in 88. In 88. That was good. Against Dukakis. Against Dukakis. Running for Ronald Reagan's third term, so he was successful with that race. Okay. There's, there, now that's a good leading question. Who, who, will, who will likely be Trump's third term? Oh, I, where's, where's, where's oh come on. It, it, we're saucing it up it here. Be Ivanka. It's got to be, uh, well, Ivanka hasn't shown us. Publicly, that she's registered Republican yet. She's right. still a Democrat. So will, that's why I said it will not be Ivanka. I mean, Mike, who knows? Mike Pence. Um, go ahead, Ted say Cruz. it. There you go. What's taking you so long? No, no, no. I'm just so, there's no reason to jump ahead. Uh, we need to get Trump reelected next year, We and I hope we can get the House back in Republican hands. The, you only, the Republicans only need a net gain of 18 congressional seats, and there are 31 districts held by Democrats that Trump won in 2016. Oh, repeat that for the audience. There are 31 districts that Democrat congressmen hold today that were won by President Trump in 2016. For the whole House. In the whole House, yes. And so that would be... Republicans uh, only need to get a net gain of 18. Now, there have been some... Uh, what, what was the net victories for the Democrats in 2018? It was almost 40. Oh, so that would uh, that would scratch it right there. Yes, but uh, you know, there's uh, there have been some retirements this year, but I don't think they were as bad as uh, when uh, Paul Ryan led uh, 46 people out of the Congress. Because I think the, in, the, in the midterms, the Republicans were kind of demoralized, and a lot of the cowardly Republicans in Congress. Yeah, there was took, no reason to be demoralized. The well, they, they, that's right, but they they thought that Trump was going to get impeached, or he was going to have to resign. Or, How, you know, why did the, why did none of us believe that? They're cowards. None of us Starting believed it. Paul Ryan, they were cowards. There were so many people yes, so, not believing any of that. Case. And I think I think Kevin McCarthy uh, can see the opportunity, and he wants to be the speaker, so he'll keep the party Yeah, together. but he opened up his big mouth last time he was up for the job. Yeah, well, uh, last time he, uh, Paul Ryan really let the party down, and he let everyone down. With his vanilla. With yeah, his, he just uh, With his $8 million bucks that he left yeah, with. Well, whatever. Uh, he didn't do his job, and he didn't he didn't lead. And so the troops that were not led uh, were defeated, and then 46 congressmen uh, retired. So I think there's a good chance for Congress this year. We have to get Maria Elvira Salazar here. I'm also working on getting Irina Villarino, who is running in uh, Congressional District 26. 
Yeah, it is what we got. We'll see. That's what we. Is there anybody else in in twenty six that we should? There uh, may be another Republican. There might be Jimenez. Who? Our mayor Jimenez. No, uh, Jimenez was talking about running against Shalala. Oh, and now with Maria Vida stepping up to the plate, might scare him away. Well, I think Maria Vida is running because he decided not to run. Okay, that's that's what she was waiting for. That's my reading. Uh, But no, there's another. There might be another Republican in the. Congressional race uh, 26 to, to take on Debbie Mercasso Powell. We also have Laura Loomer. She's running up in uh, Palm, Beach. Palm Beach County against Lois Frankel, I think, is the Democrat. So Lois is a, uh, what, three-timer? Or, or She's been elected two or three times, I believe. Okay, so she's an incumbent. So Laura Loomer is taking her on. Uh, so there you go. It's going to be an interesting congressional race next year. So why don't you vote to be her campaign chairman? Manager. Because uh, I'm busy with WSQF, executive director. Uh, Good answer. What's and, uh, the up? That's what I call so, first ad. But I'm glad that it, that uh, David answered all those questions about the polling. I think the polling that we're seeing today is one-sided. It's uh, registered voters, which is not good. It's too far away. Like he said, there is no Democrat. Uh, Trump is running against a generic Democrat. Once you have a real Democrat on the other side, I think voters are going to wake up and, and pull the lever for the Trumpster. I really would like to not talk about polls on this show. Okay. Because, you know, polls mean absolutely nothing. I find it's a lazy way of making your statement. Well, that's what the, the left is doing. The other point that he made, I think the case that they uh, took up against the Supreme Court was really excellent. And McCain-Feingold is unconstitutional. And this part of it was... Yeah, give the audience a feel for what well, it actually attempted to do. Is, is attempting to prevent organizations from engaging in political speech depending on who they are. So, for example, they, they permitted uh, the media. If it's a, it's a qualified media, then you're okay. But if you're just a citizen, a citizen assembled uh, pursuant to your First Amendment rights, then you're not okay. So that's what the court properly struck down. And it's interesting that the Democrats in the Senate are all against, they're still running against Citizens United. No, I remember Obama giving a, a State of the Union speech, right. chastising um, the Chief the Justice. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, they. Well, they. Well, he wasn't. Cha- uh, he was chastising the, court, the majority. No, but the and the Alito particular Alito. Right. Yes, right, he right, was right. chastising so Alito, they, and Alito was shaking the, his head. They made the decision in January of ten, and he delivered the uh, uh, State of the Union later that month or early in February. So it was fresh on his mind. Absolutely, and they, I think that was rightly decided. And uh, but I'm looking forward to this. Now, you think Barack Obama will claim Kenyan citizenship if this investigation goes up the chain? He will. If if the investigation goes up the chain, I think he will uh, seek asylum in the United Nations in 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 New York and and ask for the United Nations post on the rights uh, commissioner or something for 2028. No, 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 I don't know. He'll, but I think he will. He's going to be in trouble. I mean, I think there's no doubt that. it, it goes up to him, and it's it goes up to him and some of his clothes. Are there right? tapes? Well, I don't think there are tapes. I think you learned from Nixon not to have tapes. Stroke and Lisa and Page already had something about how POTUS wanted to know what was going on, but I'm sure that he's going to be implicated, and uh, you know we'll see what happens. But I think he's gonna he's going to be in trouble. Uh, if nothing else, one thing they never mention is Lynch. Man, she's gotta have she been. She's definitely in, in big trouble. You you Absolutely. gotta have been investigating she's her. Gotta be in big trouble. And I think, uh, well, this is the National Federation for Independent Business, Florida Executive Director. Let's see what he's got. 
This is the Concrete Conservative. You're live on WSQF 94.5. So who do I have a pleasure to speak with? You're speaking to Mac and Ed Vidal. Well, all right, Mac and Ed. It's Bill Hurley with the National Federation of Independent Business up in your state capital in Tallahassee. Well, and thank you very much, Bill, for calling. Uh, we want to talk to you about your efforts uh, with uh, litigation reform. But before we do that, I wanted to commend the National Federation of Independent Business because it seems to me that you guys are the only ones that are still representing small and medium-sized businesses and free enterprise in America. Well, I appreciate that, Ed, and uh, that's exactly what we are. Our name is long, but it says it all. Uh, we do lobby in your nation's capital and every state capital, and we represent independent business owners. Right. Uh, we don't accept publicly traded companies in our membership. So that's we represent, great. Uh, over 10,000 uh, small independent business owners across this state. Uh, they're just what you think they are. They are family-owned uh, businesses, uh, sometimes for many generations. Uh, they're the bastions of, of Main Street, and they've been doing it for a long time, and so have we. And so have I. Well, congratulations, because today the Wall Street Journal brought out that the Business Roundtable, which is about the 200 biggest uh, publicly listed companies, come out and said that the, the purpose of corporations should not be just to create value for shareholders, but that they have all these other social responsibilities. So you guys are the ones that are standing up for free enterprise. And in particular, we're just talking about the Obamacare case. The Obamacare case decided by Justice Roberts was NFIB versus Sibelius, right? Uh, Correct. I I guess that was sort of a coincidence of Supreme Court nomenclature. Uh, But as you know, uh, that case originated in Florida. Uh, with our then Attorney General uh, Bill McCullum. And it was the morning after uh, Obamacare had passed. Uh, Big surprise, I was a a little bit down in the dumps and wandered over to the General's office. Mm -hmm. And uh, lo and behold, a few weeks later, we were, NFIB was uh, joined as a full plaintiff in that case and uh, uh, provided uh, uh, the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of small business owners that were adversely affected by it. Uh, we fought that case uh, starting with the federal court in, in Pensacola, yep. uh, it, all the way up to the Supreme Court, and it, it didn't quite come out the way we uh, were expecting or had hoped, uh, but it did uh, point out some important issues uh, that the state of Florida actually took solace in uh, as Florida, uh, with its strong political leadership, was one of the only states uh, to deny Medicaid expansion. Right. And that authority was made clear in the NFIB Sebelius case. Well, we I were think, hoping yeah. that we could protect all of our small business owners from the mandate in that case, um, but we did not get a majority on, on that part of the case. Well, but that's good because you set up the case. You went as far as you could with the Supreme Court, and then Robert stood on his head and said, oh, this is a tax, even though the legislative history said it wasn't. But now there's a case coming out of Texas that uh, challenges the Roberts' uh, basis for upholding the uh, Obamacare. So I think there's, that's going to be an interesting case to be held to, heard in the Supreme Court in October. Well, I want to elaborate. If it is a tax and, it's, uh, and that stands, didn't the tax originate 
in the in the in the Senate, and therefore it should be unconstitutional from that. Roberts was totally wrong. I wanted to know his opinion on that because. If indeed it, it holds that it was a tax, well, we know that Harry Reid proposed that out of the Senate. Yep. So it has to be unconstitutional just because the Senate cannot tax. Cannot start a tax. Cannot initiate a tax. Right. How do you feel about that? Well, here's the thing. We're, we're very proud at NFIB of the uh, opposition that we provided to the employer mandate. You know, we've been doing it since they called it Hillary Care, and we did it through Obamacare. And you know what? We'll do it all over again uh, for our members because we feel that a mandate is the wrong approach. But here's the other side of that. You know, throughout uh, for the last 20 years, except until recently, and we'll come to that, uh, health care has remained uh, the number one issue that small business owners want fixed. Uh you know, listen, they need health insurance themselves, and they want to provide health insurance to their employees in a fair and open marketplace, and they'd love to see the prices come down. So we have a great reputation at NFIB uh, for being the last line of defense against a one-size-fits-all employer mandate. Uh, but we work hard, particularly up here in Tallahassee, at trying to come up with some other ideas that are very market-oriented that can provide health ins- more health insurance to uh, more small businesses. One of the ideas that we were very pleased to see the legislature pass and expand upon in the last two years uh, is the idea of... Uh, uh, pooling. Pooling, uh, pooling a company so they can uh, pool their insurance? Hospitalizations, 
So what people are finding they can do is they can go out and get a direct primary care contract for between 80 to $100 a month and then go out and get just a limited major medical hospitalization policy at a much larger cost, a much, much smaller cost than they otherwise would have if they were including all of their doctor visits under their insurance policy. We're hoping that more and more docs convert their practice to this, uh, and we're seeing that. Of course, doctors are, are a little conservative, and some of them are hesitant to make this leap to this transition because really the ability for them to do this uh, has only been enshrined by the legislature in the last two years. Uh, but we're seeing a lot of excitement. I went to a conference in Orlando last year, and the room was filled with over 200 doctors uh, who were learning how they can convert their practice where they are basically a servant of the insurance company now to this more direct primary care practice where the patient is involved. So, yeah, I mean, that would increase their cash flow for for the abilities to uh, maybe uh, retrofit their offices for the first time in their careers. I noticed that a lot of doctors have had the same office. You go in there and the offices are still decorated like in the 70s because there's just no money for improving the actual facility. So they got to like that. It's, it would be a membership program, right, with your doctor. You, they would basically be established like a medical club among his patients. They pay every month. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a small business owner, so I'm just going to go ahead. And, I'm a retailer, so I'm going to go ahead and say the register would get full of money every month, I- even if the patient is not sick. So most people— right. It would work exactly like your health club. You know, you're, you're going to pay that, that dues to the health club whether you go and exercise or not, but you know that if you, you, you need to and you want to, you can go to your doctor with, without a fee. Uh, doctors are proven that they can uh, uh, still be very profitable in, in this manner. And if you look closely at those doctor's offices of today that you're describing, you're probably going to see at least one or maybe two employees that do nothing well, paperwork. fill out paperwork no. for the insurance companies. Well, here locally, it's usually the wife of the doctor. <laughs> it's usually the wife of the physician. The practicing physician's wife is usually the the person pushing all the paper around. That's a very uh, a Latin thing. Uh, keep an eye on the doctor. Down here in South Florida. <laughs> yeah, down here in South Florida is uh, usually the wife in there. She's running the paperwork in the practice. Now, uh, you think that would also translate to possibly uh, country hospitals, neighborhood hospitals doing the same thing, uh, hospital clubs where... You're not pretty much. You pretty much know a list of doctors that work in the hospital, but not necessarily a primary doctor who you are accustomed to seeing. You think that would work at the hospital level as well? Because they would obviously have more cash flow. Uh, we'll see. I know that since we passed the first direct primary care legislation in Tallahassee two years ago, it was expanded uh, this year to include uh, other types of health professionals uh, like dentists and chiropractors. Uh, we think that this has a model to potentially expand. And listen, I'm not going to sit here and demonize the insurance companies. They play an absolutely critical role. But our administrative costs in our health care system are something that we can take a serious look at reducing. And, you know, I'll just ask the, 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 the common sense question. You know, do you really need an insurance company between you and your doctor if you're just bringing your kid in for, you know, the fourth time this year uh, for an earache to go ahead and get the penicillin they need to get over that earache. You know, 
there are some things that are just not worth insuring. Uh, you know, we, we all buy homeowner's insurance, but it's there to insure when the house burns down or is destroyed in some, some disaster, not for when you need a fresh coat of paint. Uh, so we yeah, it's a good analogy. Our health insurance, so it insures only the, the very extraordinary and uh, uh, unexpected costs of, of maintaining your health, not the routine costs. Yeah, it looks like it would be catered perfectly for a business like mine. I'm a, I'm a hardware owner, hardware store, so I only have three employees and uh, maybe four visits a month uh, from an accountant. He has the Ace Hardware Store in Key Biscayne, and you have to go like half an hour to find another hardware store on the mainland. Yeah, so uh, with three employees, um, the money that I give them to go get their own insurance, they would save a considerable amount of money uh, being part of some kind of uh, primary care club. I like to call it club because I think most people would understand the club concept. And I can't yeah, see how... Club. That's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah, medical club. I would see how, uh, my God, a doctor's got to love it because that's right there makes his payroll for his... We're seeing a lot more of them convert to it. And, you know, I, I don't know what's available in your area, but if you Google, uh, just search for uh, direct primary care in your area, you might find that there are doctors that are uh, practicing like this today. Uh, then you can go back to your insurer and say, you know, listen, I, I, I don't need all this type of coverage. I'm taking care of these expenses uh, in, in a direct contract with my doctor. So give me a more... Now, does the law specify that the, that the doctor who has you... Uh, okay, let's say the doctor uh, recognizes your uh, catastrophic care insurance. Does that doctor have a problem when he also has you under a club membership? How does he bill you? To, because he's the he's obviously the arbiter between uh, an infection that uh, that was just an infection at one time, but now it's uh, an amputation or it's uh, it needs hospital care. How is it that he separates the patient that's a member uh, membership care of his? And he needs to bill the insurance company of that same patient for them, uh, not, not necessarily cost, catastrophic care, but uh, uh, an operation or something that required a hospital stay. Well, that, that's a good question, and that's one of the things we addressed in the legislation. You know, what what we can't allow is for a physician to uh, double dip where they would have already have a patient's care under a contract, under a direct primary care contract, and then making a charge against the insurance company too. And maybe there is a, a, a doctor out there that wouldn't practice in, with the proper uh, ethics and, and in, in law that we passed, we make sure that that is still illegal. Now, in practical terms, when the doctor has to scale up their, their treatment of the patient, uh, it's going to be spelled out in that contract. And in the practice of medicine today, people typically get turned over to uh, uh, specialists. We are talking about uh, uh, family physicians, people General that practice. provide simple... Uh, so they would be entitled to a referral, per se. You know, small lacerations, a few stitches, people require more attention to that. Yeah, fractures. They get into an insurance system, and they're going to get into the hands of a specialist right, right away. Because okay. I can see that that being... Uh, that little caveat I just explained could be what makes doctors reluctant to go ahead and, and change the business model of their practice because they might they would know whether 
what percentage of their patients that come in for the uh, rudimentary you know exams end up with in my case I remember I was going to the doctor all the time because I had childhood um, asthma and there were there were several times in my life before the age of 15 or 16 where I end up in the hospital with you know the breathing tubes and everything so and my little brother the same so I could see how in my case he might he might be reluctant to take me as uh, a club patient as well as not uh, and also have to take my insurance and there, there being a conflict there knowing that I'm going to end up in the hospital again I mean there's got to be a lot of situations like that where different diseases well I mean that's a good uh, I'm glad to hear about that new legislation but let's go to uh, what your uh, new objective is this year which is to bring litigation reform to the great state of Florida uh, hopefully similar to what's been done in the great state of Texas why don't you yeah. tell us about that well, let me tell you, it's the eternal torment of small independent business owners. Uh, many of them aren't in business for long before they've faced some sort of uh, litigation or lawsuit. And even if they haven't, it's a dark cloud that's always hanging over their head. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to share with you a, a study that NFIB uh, recently released really just to help people put uh, paint a picture of what goes on in our economy. Because uh, it's, it's fair to say that it is a significant friction cost in our economy. In Florida, the annual cost of litigation is $7.6 billion in direct costs. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to tell you, that's everything. That's all the litigation, and the la- and I'm a fierce opponent of the trial bar, but the last thing I would try to insinuate is that all litigation is specious or frivolous or unnecessary. We know that things need to be addressed. There's plenty of business-to-business litigation that happens. But first of all, let's just recognize that that's a pretty expensive part of our economy. Uh, can we take a closer look at it? And what we did over that that full cost is took a look at the different uh, regions of the state and uh, came up with their individual uh, uh, cost of litigation in that area. And unsurprisingly, uh, Miami wasn't at the top. The Miami (laughs) Miami Dade uh, area came up of the twelve regions. Uh, across the state came up with the highest tort tax, which is $979, and well, and here it is, and 92 cents per person. Mm. That's for every uh, uh, that's for every person in the uh, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach metropolitan statistical area, which I think goes all the way down through the Keys. Yep. Uh, whether you're involved in litigation or not, you're paying $979. In, in societal uh, litigation costs. Okay, well, wait a second. Let the audience know. How is it that you come up with a number, and how is it? How are we paying it? Uh, uh, who? What's the government authority that has us paying that tax? Just be out of. Is it a math average, or is it actual tax that we are paying in some way or another? Well, uh, since you mentioned that you are a business owner and you're a retailer, uh, you'll recognize yourself uh, that you have. Uh, costs of doing business that are a result of uh, uh, litigation. You have to provide workers' comp, workers' compensation insurance to your employees. Correct. Uh, you have to 
to have a general liability policy at your business. And those costs uh, are driven by the risk that's associated with your business. I'm sure you're a very safe business, but when you buy into an insurance policy, you're assuming you know, you're, you're spreading the risk across all of those businesses, so you agree to pay a portion of that risk. Uh, and those costs uh, have to come out, uh, have to be reconciled in your bottom line. If you're not charging enough money for that garden hose, uh, that includes covering those insurance costs, then you're not going to be in business very long. Okay, so it's uh, so it's less transparent. And in fact, because the cost is raised, some business isn't done. Some transactions are foregone. Some employees are not hired because businesses don't want to take on the cost. Yeah, there, there's uh, over 120-something days of the year that I'm open for business just to pay the, the various taxes for a yeah, municipal— a formal tax from a, from a municipal or government entity. This is a, a, an added tax that the court system imposes. Yeah, that's what I want the audience to get clear on because I'm not very clear on it. Um, you, well, be- you talk about tax freedom day, and you know maybe that falls for you somewhere in April, or March, and and I think that was that. Yeah, it's just right. You know that that's how long you have to work to make sure you're fueling your government at the local, state, and federal level. Then after that. What we're suggesting is there's probably a a further freedom day somewhere down the road where you're working just to pay, grease the wheels of justice, to make sure that our justice system continues to work, which is absolutely critical to, to fair commerce. But that's an additional burden on our in our economy that we're saying that we should just take a, a rational look at. Mm-hmm. Now, let me tell you about some of the things uh, we're, we're asking the legislature to do. And for the first time uh, here at NFIB, we feel like we're finally going on the offense and treating the litigation industry for what it is, which is simply another industry. Right. Uh, it's a business of suing. Trying to, you know, don't get me started off the tracks and disrupt the way we do business. And maybe it's about time we take a close look at how they do their business. And one of the things we've discovered in the past couple years is that there's a what we think is a uh, not a real good thing going on where uh, litigation uh, is financed. Uh, we think there should be two parties in a courtroom. There should be a plaintiff and there should be a defendant. A lot of people are shocked to find out that more often than you know, more often than you might think, there are third parties yep. outside of the courtroom that have a financial interest in the outcome of that case. Now, some of us have heard about litigation financing and think about it as, you know, some small town courageous attorney that's taking on a big giant corporation 
and, uh, and and he some people help him in his heroic fight. Uh, this is becoming much more mercenary than that. Uh, we are finding that uh, there are companies out there that are creating financial instruments, investment instruments uh, that people can put money into that basically speculate on the outcome of a bunch of aggregated uh, class action suits. The, the small slip and fall case in, in your in store your <laughs> court might be one case that's been gathered up with dozens or even hundreds of others and allowed and, and is, is serving as a, uh, a, a wagering stake uh, for outside parties. We think that when more Floridians discover that this is happening, they're going to have a very, they're going to have a knot in their stomach. And something about ordinary, upright citizens tells them that this is not right and this is, should not be going on in our justice system. Okay, now, but isn't there, isn't there a beneficiary? Like, we're going to ask them to do either one of two things. At the very least, we think the legislators should say to the courts that when there's a third party that has a financial stake in the outcome of a court case, it should be known. That's for sure. That there's someone else who's in that courtroom uh, looking for a certain outcome and has a financial stakehold in it. Or we're going to ask the legislature that maybe they should just prohibit this entirely. Now, bear in mind, this is not strictly like a, a, a financial instrument like you might think of a business that goes to a bank and says, I need a, a a line of credit so that I can make payroll this weekend. This is not a law firm that just goes out and goes to a bank and says, I need a loan to build a bigger office or to pay my payroll. These are people that are putting money down and they don't get it back if they don't win the case. And that to me sounds precariously close to gambling. And that sounds like gambling on our justice system. So we're going to ask the legislature to take a real close look at this next year. Now, aren't there aren't there cases like class action cases that could not get off the ground without these uh, third party funding the litigation? Not necessarily, no, no, no. The class action and and litigation financing are separate matters. Yeah, I, I want the audience to know action. the distinguishing factor there. You What's can have a class action without having a third party financier of the plaintiff's attorneys? Right? Would you agree, Bill? Well, you, you certainly could. I mean, it's, it's not a necessary part of it. And, you know, if we find that, they, and, and we don't want to, you know, bar access to the courts, uh, and if it's necessary for class action lawsuits, you know, we can carve those out. We're not negotiating the legislation here and now uh, on the phone, but, you know, if that's necessary, they can be carved out. But even if they are still necessary for people to have access to the courts, uh, should it not be known, as the jurors are sitting in judgment of these cases, mm-hmm. that there are other people that are taking a financial stakehold in it? And again, you know, perhaps financing is not the right label. It should be called speculation. Well, you know, it's fine. Go out and get a loan uh, if that's what you need to make sure these cases go forward. But guess what? If the case does not succeed, I'm guessing in a standard bank loan, 
terms and conditions still apply. Right, you still have you to still pay owe back. that money. Yep. What we want to stop is the speculative part of it, where people will put money down knowing that they're taking a risk, which is fine. You know, entrepreneurs understand risk-taking. Uh, and if they don't win the case, they know they get nothing. But if they do, they know they're going to hit a huge payout. Yeah, there's... And we don't think that's what our justice system should be about. What kind of response have you gotten from the legislature? A lot of raised eyebrows. You know, again, most people are, are have heard of this going on, but they, they think of it in, in big mega cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're finding is that there are people that are organizing this on garden variety litigation and aggregating them into large packages where people can speculate. So we think we're get, going to get a lot of interest from the legislators. Uh, I think we have a very uh, strong leadership, particularly in the House mm-hmm. uh, and in the House Judiciary Committee uh, with uh, uh, Chairman uh, Rommel, who's just from over in the uh, Naples area, I believe. He's familiar with this issue, and I think he'll be giving us, uh, at the very least, a committee hearing. And at that time, we think that the, you know this will come as news to many people in the media as well. So we think there'll be a lot more talked about this issue over the next year. Okay. What about uh, this year? There, I think the legislature limited the assignment of claims. Yeah. Uh, how, why don't you tell our audience how, how that works and what, what was accomplished there and if more needs to be done? Well, I, I'll tell you first and foremost, that, that was an enormous log jam. Yep. the legislature for six years. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sitting at my office now looking out across the street at the state capitol, and, you know, there, there are an awful lot of well-intended people in the legislature. I, I will tell you that. But uh, for goodness sakes, this has been a serious problem for a number of years, and it's a little disappointing that it took them six years to fix it. And this is the issue that... Uh, basically allows what should be small, normal uh, uh, homeowners insurance uh, repairs to get out of scale when, regrettably, uh, the home repair people work in coordination uh, with the trial lawyers, and their interest isn't in so much in getting your home repaired as quickly as possible as it is in maximizing their litigation and maximizing their attorney's fees. So it's a very good thing uh, for, you know, the homeowner's insurance that the legislature uh, has addressed this. Uh, We do think uh, that the legislature was successful in taking out uh, the incentives for these repairs to be prolonged uh, for the sake of uh, uh, driving up the attorney's fees portion of a homeowner's insurance claim. But importantly to NFIB, uh, this has been sort of the sole occupation of the uh, uh, civil litigation debates in the legislature for several years. Now that this has finally passed and now that the governor has signed this into law, we think that the legislature has now, uh, that logjam has passed, and we think that uh, a lot more attention can be paid to other important tort reform issues. Okay. So we're very optimistic that a lot more can happen All right. uh, in the upcoming 2020 session. So what kinds of uh, tort reform do you anticipate? Well, we think it's very important that 
the legislators take a, a, a new and a fresh look at this new issue of litigation financing or right. litigation speculation, as we're calling it. Yep. Uh, but we've talked about that. Uh, what else is important for the legislature to do? Uh, a couple things. Right now, there is virtually no cap on attorney's fees in the workers' compensation system. Mm. Uh, we are paying usual and customary rates, and what that ends up being is one attorney asking, what do you want to charge? And and the other attorney answers, a whole lot. And then the first attorney says, that sounds good to me, too. <laughs> we used to have a, a fee schedule in the workers' comp system that regrettably was thrown out by the Florida Supreme Court. Yeah, which is known uh, to be very liberal. The new uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, on his first day of business, I believe, uh, he started naming new Supreme Court justices. We have a different Supreme Court now. We right. think this court uh, will take a fresh look at having fee caps in the workers' comp system. Mm -hmm. So if the legislature should, would reestablish that, uh, we think that the court may look upon it more favorably and we can control our workers' comp costs. Now, let me point out one thing. Workers' comp rates happen to be going down. Well, that's great because if you've been around this state for a while, you've seen how deadly it is to businesses when workers' comp rates are, are going up by yeah. double digits every year. I'm familiar with California, and that has been a big problem for businesses in California. Well, my contention is rates are going down because our economy is just so red hot. We are employing more people and paying them a higher wage than ever before in history. The insurance principle 101, the more people you spread the risk across, the lower the cost is going to be for everyone. So we are seeing go rates going down, but we know enough to look underneath the hood in the system and when you look under the hood, you can see that attorney's fees are escalating within the system. Mm -hmm. And we think that if we don't repair that by restoring that uh, very soon, and should we take, let's hope not, but should we take a downturn in the economy, then we could get the double whammy of seeing a, a struggling economy with escalating workers' comp rates, and that wouldn't be good for jobs. Mm -hmm. So workers' comp attorneys' fees, we want them right. to address that. So part of this uh, litigation reform is really undoing decisions by the Florida Supreme Court, which heretofore has been pretty liberal, considering that we've had uh, Republican governors for over 20 years. Is that right? Well, you know, re Republicans have uh, had a majority in, in the House and the Senate and have held the governor's mansion uh, for over 20 years now. Yep. Uh, but incredibly, uh, through some perseverance and longevity, uh, the Florida Supreme Court was still a legacy of the former Democratic rule in yep. this town. Yep. And only through eventual mandatory retirements uh, have we, by good fortune of the calendar, seen an enormous transition in the Florida Supreme Court concurrent with uh, the election of Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, had his opponent been somehow elected, and I'll remind everyone just how close that election was, mm -hmm. uh, we probably would have seen a perpetuation of the liberal Supreme Court in Florida. But with Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, we, 
saw in very quick order uh, three very strong appointments of uh, conservative jurists. And uh, while I wouldn't prejudge uh, any Supreme Court justice on, on cases, uh, we do feel that it is worth the uh, expenditure of political goodwill for the legislature to reestablish uh, or reconsider some of the things the previous court has thrown out. And let's get these things back in front of them. Let's get a workers' comp attorney fee cap back in front of them. You know, the court also threw out uh, years ago a cap on medical malpractice damages. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right now, we have there's no cap at all on medical malpractice damages. Now, I know some of those damages can be very expensive, and I know uh, the cap probably needs to be very high. But for goodness sake, could we come up with any number? Could we come up with some type of ceiling? Uh, you know, you you can't insure something unless you know some limits. If you're trying to insure something, uh, if you're if you're trying to insure your house, they're going to ask you how much is your house worth, and how much would it cost to rebuild. That can be insured. Go try to get insurance for a house, and when they ask you how much is it going to cost to rebuild, you'll say, I won't tell you. It might cost a million. It might cost two million. It might cost ten million. Well, how can that be insured? Yeah, and you just couldn't get anyone to take an offer on that. Yeah, in the case of medicine, it's even more severe (laughs) because neurosurgery. uh, We got to come up with some number. Yeah. Because a neurosurgeon operating on, on the brain got to be very expensive. Yeah, if you don't do that. If you don't have a cap, then it's a crapshoot with the jury. It's whatever they come up with. Yeah, spinal surgery, uh, neurosurgery. I mean, these are these are things that a malpractice case in either one of those two practices could cripple a doctor. And at the same time... These are very serious issues. They, they can cause harm to a person. Uh, they can last a lifetime. And these are very serious issues and some very big numbers we're talking about. But I guess what we're saying is, well, at least pick a number, at least come up with something. We might, And we might not even like the insurance rates when they crank them out. But right now, it, it, it's, it's very difficult for them to assess what that risk is. Okay, I have the magic question that Ed always chagrins because I ask every time we talk about insurance. Why is it that the moral hazard stipulated in insurance industry by the actuaries is so rock solid and when I don't believe it's true that deductibles should be law? I'm I'm for getting rid of deductibles entirely. Why is that impossible? Uh, you know, I, I, I and the majority of my members might take issue with you on that. Uh, you know, ju- I, I, I don't want to... I'll make a generalization here, but, you know, most of the business owners we talk to uh, do want to uh, assume uh, some risk in their insurance policies. You know, one of uh, a very uh, rarely exercised option in workers' comp law allows for employers to have a deductible uh, almost no, you know, 
insurance companies don't like selling that feature, uh, but it's allowed under the law. And a lot of business owners think, okay, if I can handle, you know, some slightly higher out-of-pocket costs and then reduce my premium overall, it's a win-win for me. Yep. Uh, yeah, but see, but help. wait, 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 time out. Even, even if you say that, you are creating the parameters of the thought process. If they were illegal, then everybody's premiums well, would have to be competitive. I thought you were a conservative. I'm not. I don't even. I don't even find. I don't find. I don't find the moral hazard to have over course of time has not been an issue. I don't believe people would use their health care excessively and fake no, pain and fake sickness. What he's to, saying is that a lot of business owners would accept a deductible because they figure they can handle. But that's not what that. I'm asking. Of course, people okay. will accept. Of course, if you tell them, and the actuaries back this up. That, hey, if you pay a higher deductible, as I'm paying right now after post-Obamacare, my deductible is skyrocketing. I'm paying cash for serious surgeries to my hand and my arm and nerve, nerve damage. I've had to pay cash for that for the high deductible. Now, of course, I've been against deductibles way before this injury. But nevertheless, the issue that I'm asking is if you take away the, the theory of moral hazard or the reasoning behind deductibles, if you just eliminate it from the entire industry – wouldn't the, the organic competitive nature of insurance company eventually reduce the premiums regardless of the fact that there isn't a deductible? Well, I'll tell you what, Mac, you really are giving me food for thought. And I think, I, you know, my, my first question, I'm, I might ask you to, you know, help me and define what you mean by moral hazard as in, you know, I, I stated it earlier in giving an example, you know. It's time to have the conversation. The principle of insurance that the broader you spread the risk, you know, the lower the costs are for everyone. So if it's in that vein that you're suggesting, you know, theoretically, if if we were to prohibit uh, deductibles in, you know, across all lines of insurance, would the cost for everyone... Well, 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 not, oh, no, just in healthcare, because in property care, so I can see... Just in healthcare. Right, because in property... Right, because people don't fake pain for the hell of it. You know what I mean? In in, in property and casualty. Carlos Stanton. Okay. Jacoby Ellsbury. I mean, it, it happens in every every business. When if you insure people, uh, they'll have an incentive. Oh, you're to, talking about professional athletes? Yeah, everybody. If it starts with them, if you insure people, then you, you know. Well, he makes a good case when it comes to athletes because they have a benefit. Say, We're going to cover you uh, no matter what. Then you're going to be less careful. That's that's what uh, the, the that is so meant. that is such malarkey. No, it's nobody true. likes pain. It's true. it's true. Now in property, I can understand because then you can you know actually drill a hole in your roof because you want to replace the roof and all that. I, I explain uh, that is obvious because there's no pain associated with it. But you use you use a professional athlete, which is a good case, which I haven't come up with yeah, yeah, because there yeah. is a benefit from yeah, playing poorly. Yeah, in other well, words, if my wrist playing, hurts, once you, once you get the big contract, but his wrist still hurts. I mean, no, 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 it doesn't hurt that much. Yeah, yeah he makes a good case. In, in that in case, the day before they had the big contract, people would suck it up and play. Right, Think but they know that their new contract depends on how many home well, runs they hit and all that. Once you get one of these big contracts, they don't care. But the normal layperson, yeah. I, you, you think uh, in the workman's comp world, people would, uh, they didn't have a deductible, they would. I don't get it. They just not work. They're faking inju- injury. If there's no deductible, then there's no incentive to avoid injuries. Faking an injury does not have to there's work. No incentive to avoid injuries. So 
you'd have more injuries. That's why a lot of business owners will take a higher deductible and they'll say, oh, well, I'll be careful. I'll hire careful people. I'll supervise them. That is save. not That is not true. Yeah, well, now, now, Mac, I understand why it doesn't like you bringing this one up because it sure, it's an interesting debate. And I, I'll contribute to it by using hyperbole in an extreme example. You know, let's let's just imagine there was such a thing as as food insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there wasn't a, a Publix or any more groceries, but you got all your food by ha- paying a, a food insurance premium. And if you if you had food insurance with a zero deductible, uh, you know, would would you eat steak every day, or would you sometimes uh, just have a sandwich? I'd eat steak every day. I'd eat steak every day. No, that's not true either because, look, there's a natural reality of eating steak every day, uh, gout. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gout. You get gout. All right, well, let me, let me ask you before we let you go because we're going to have to go in a little while, but how does this compare? How does, how, do your, how does Florida compare in litigation with other states? Like I, I came from Texas a few years ago, uh, California. How bad is the litigation system currently in Florida compared with other states? Well, you know, I, I, I can't say that I've been uh, a, a lobbyist for the business community for as long as I have and not be proud of an awful lot of things in our state. Okay. I, before I say anything, I want to say there are so many things that are awesome about the Florida economy, Yep. starting with the Florida workforce, uh, starting with the blessings of our environment mm-hmm. and the forests that attracts. There are so many great things. How about no snow for the whole year? (laughs) But, you know, when it comes to litigation, we've got a long way to go. There are some cases that there are some states that I think are in worse shape than than Florida. I think you you think of of some other southern states that have become politically just – dominated by travelers. I'm thinking of Mississippi and Alabama. They have a long way to go. There are some states that are have been very vigorous in tort reform that I think we can model ourselves off, off of. I, I think Texas has done a great job. And I, so in some, you know, Florida really does have a long way to go. Uh, the trial lawyers are a very real and very persistent presence in Tallahassee. And that's hard to overcome. Let's face it, I I represent thousands and thousands of small independent business owners, but they're guys like Mac, you know, who's busy actually running their business and employing people, and they they can't stop what they're doing and travel to Tallahassee.
uh, engage your legislator, keep in contact with them, and when they come to Tallahassee, let them know that you're a part of a group like NFIB or whatever group you you support uh, that's keeping an eye on them when they're up in the state capitol. Well, I thank you very much for defending our interest. Uh, you know, you. Us, us little tiny businesses uh, definitely need well, your support. Business is what drives the American economy. It's what drives uh, opportunity, innovation, and employment. So to heck with the big businesses. Well, I believe you, uh, you're, um, you will have a new member shortly. Well, we hope so. And if anyone wants to look us up, we're really easy to find online at nfib.com.org. Just punch in those letters, and our organization will come right up. And uh, we're proud. We're very proud uh, to represent independent business owners across the state and nation. So, thanks for the time, uh, Mac and Ed, and and uh, I, I, I hope that uh, someday I'll get down to your corner of the state, and I, I hope that you uh, at least once make a trip up to Tallahassee to see uh, to affect your legislature when they're in action. Well, the next time you're on their show, uh, here's your homework. Tell the governor I still love him, and he knows it, and uh, I want to see what smile he puts on his face when you tell him. Tell him you were on our show. He was here when this was being built, and he he was here with his wife, Casey, when this place was just, uh, you know, uh, in, in demolition mode back in January 2016. So uh, I thank you for your time today, and it, it was nice meeting you. Absolutely. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. So uh, there you go. You might become a member of the National Federation of Independent Business, and maybe he gets rid of deductibles. How about that, Maples? Oh no! But I think it's really interesting that these guys are representing the. What do you mean, no, no? He actually had to yeah. give us some thought. No, tell him you'll become a member. It's time to have the conversation. Read up on deductibles. And the I need to read up on the thieves that are the actu- the actuaries who come up with these numbers. No, for for 50 people. years now, they've been ripping us off with no, this deductible number, con. No, but maybe the number of the How many people don't go see their doctor because their deductible is so damn high? They, but, the opposite right, is the occurring. The of a deductible is, is felonious. Insurance. No, it isn't. How many people, I just repeat you after me. Healthy. It's like baseball. That's not you true. People are not going to see the doctor. healthy is a skill. I'm sorry. You had a good argument with a professional yeah, athlete. Yeah, he, has, yeah, yeah. he has a vested interest. But, but no, how many people can't afford a deductible and don't go see the doctor, no, and that right. pain in their abdomen ends up being stomach right. cancer because well, they didn't right. go to the so doctor? What I do want to say is the National Federation of Independent Business is a really uh, a supporter of small and medium-sized businesses and of free enterprise. And you compare that with entities like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, eh. which is supporting illegal immigration and supports uh, all sorts of other things. And then the business roundtable, which today came out saying that the purpose of a corporation is not to maximize profits to its shareholders, which is the traditional position, but now they want uh, the corporation to have all this other social responsibility to its uh, other all sorts of other stakeholders. The problem with that is that if you're dealing with a publicly listed corporation, that means that the CEO and his cronies in management and the board can do whatever they want. They no longer have a responsibility to maximize profits for the investors, the savers, who bought his shares. Now and are can, holding them. Well, yeah, now he can spread it around, you know, whatever he, he thinks is useful, uh, employees, uh, his his wife's favorite charity, whatever it might be. You know what, that, in the, the corporate world, I think the probably the shining star in corporate America 
is a tremendous amount of uh, donations they give to the causes of their choice, but not well, mandated, simply because they desire it. You well, know, that's fine, and that's fine. But how many, how many, ch- with, how many children hospitals are you, supported right, by corporations? But, right, but you got to do it with your money, or you got to do it for some. Corporate Look what Mr. Hutzman did with the Cancer Institute over in Utah. Hutzman was Hutzman, the yeah. yeah the yeah, but that's a family-owned company. Yeah. So they took the family money and put it in there. That's fine. But in a publicly listed company, it's other people's money. That's the correct. shareholders own that company. And the CEO needs to keep their interests foremost. Not oh, so you, you're distinguishing the difference between the two. Absolutely. If it's your own money, if it's your private business, yeah. like, like your Ace Hardware, then you can contribute to whatever charity you want. But if you're talking about a public corporation like General Electric, it's owned by the public shareholders. And the people that are public shareholders are savers who are putting their money into the corporation hoping to get some money back for you know whatever the, their well they're risking they're risking they're risking it they're per, they have personal needs so the ceo needs to put their priority uh, first and not go with all these other you know whatever social responsibility uh he might and who have. and the round table the is business a- round table is the 200 biggest Corporations publicly listed in America. It's led by Jamie Dimon. Oh my God! Are you kidding me? The uh, CEO of Johnson and Johnson and people like that, all very uh, bleeding. Tell Johnson Johnson to cover his, you know what? Because talcum powder is causing (laughs) vaginal and uh, uterus cancer. There you go. But you know, Jamie Dimon is a crony capitalist. Uh, Look at his, and I think part of the problem there is that, uh, especially after the fiscal uh, financial crisis. Of 2008, we've had a lot of concentration in American industry. The banking industry and capital markets are very concentrated. It's very coming very hard to reach the capital markets, to start new companies, to challenge the entrenched businesses. So that's a real issue that's happening. That's happened uh, certainly since the financial crisis, and it's happening in, in technology as well. And part of it is regulations. We're increasing regulation and regulation of the capital market. Yeah, regulation without outcome either because there's nothing favorable about a stupid regulation. Well, but but so the regulation makes it harder to reach the capital markets. And so it, it, it acts as a barrier to entry for the established corporations. And it doesn't allow a small business to even make a mistake. Yep. Because yep, yep. that, uh, uh, That's another thing that, talk about moral hazard. Talk about the learning curve it takes to operate a business and get past the fifth year right. when you get distracted by filling out paperwork to, to, to accomplish some mandate. Right. And that's one of the real achievements of the Trump administration is reducing regulations. And that's part of why we have, we're not going to have a, a, we're not close to having a recession. We have a, a, a very much of a thriving economy uh, in addition to his deregulation with respect to the environment, getting out of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, having more energy production, but even so, a lot of these pipelines are still stuck in court, and then that goes to the next step, putting in more conservative federal judges who will not legislate from the bench and who will allow companies to do their job. So that's a big part of why we had this guy from the, he's the, uh, Bill Hurley is the executive director of the National Federation of Independent Business here in the state of Florida. And as you can see, he's been—he's a veteran of the wars in Tallahassee, so that was a, a yeah, very yeah. measured response. Absolutely, very responsible guy. Uh, you know, we, David Bossy is a, the media—the media guy—and and Bill was really giving us the nuts and bolts of legislation. So that was very useful, I thought. I think this is a, a, a very solid, concrete, conservative show. Concrete show. Now, the, uh, uh, we 
Done for callers today? Uh, yes, we have two. We had two callers today. We're going to have some good callers next week. I'm out of town, uh, but then we're going to have some. Uh, oh, so you do? Uh, so you, you basically exe- you the executive producer extraordinaire for one show, and now you're already asking for time off. No, no, absolutely. Well, I have to go to visit my mother and sister in Chicago next weekend, but then the following week is uh, is going to is Labor Day, and uh, Katrina from Women for Trump will be in the studio. She wants to come and see the studio since she's has uh, we have the whole You know who off. replied to me on Instagram? <laughs> Another Katrina. Katrina Vidal? No, Katrina Pearson. Pearson from Dallas. Yes, we yeah, she she's a she's a Trump spokesman. Yeah, I uh I just made a comment to her that struck a chord with her and she replied and then um I sent her a message today. What was it about? about her sitting on the Steve Hilton's Revolution right, show, show, and they talked about education again. Yep. And this woman who wrote a book called Fighting Goliath, okay? Yep. This person fought Goliath, not her. I heard her story. What the hell is she doing on the show? Oh. I should be on that show. Oh, you should be. Well, you, who's your uh, publicist? Uh, Eduardo you know, Vidal. I line up callers for this show. Oh, yeah, you're an executive producer, you, media. You want me to get you on uh, on the Steve Hilton uh, Next Revolution show? I also want to be on Bartiromo's show. That you're one requires my book. What did this lady with uh, Fighting Goliath uh, have to say? Maybe well, we have her call in. Yes, I would like to commend her for writing her book and putting it in paperback. What's her name? Um, ooh, you busted okay, me. you got to get that. Wait, well, no, no, keep on talking. Wait, Steve, we can actually um, play for six minutes. You can hear, we'll play Steve Hilton's show if you give me a she moment. Had, and she had a, she had a segment there on uh, fighting Goliath. Yes, uh, Charlie Kirk was present. Hey, Katrina was, Pearson was present. What was, she, what was, she, what was, what was and her if you, setting? And she the, was trying to take over a local school she, on behalf no, of No, adopt a teacher because they're being abused by the PTA, which abused right, me. Typical. And the union, it's so, it was so along. My testimony was 10 times better than hers. And because of people like yourself who mm-hmm. are sleeping at the wheel, Draina sleeping at the wheel, Charlie oh. Kirk sleeping at the wheel, Candace Owens sleeping at the wheel, these are kids that benefit from what I'm proposing, and my testimony is to their benefit because they will have children they're one day. Wait, they're waiting for your book to come out. Did you go to your editor this week? I spent nine hours. Don't give us the name. It's a secret. Yeah, it's uh, a secret. A secret genius who sat with me for from well, nine in the morning till gonna, five in the afternoon. He's gonna be, I know he's Jewish, but I think he's going to be up for. You're already a, saying too much about him. You already called oh, him a male. Oh, you call him a male Jewish a male person. Ju- yeah, you weren't oh, supposed to say any of those things. Doing it with Laura Loomer. Okay. You weren't supposed to say any of that. All right, good. So good. I'm going to continue here. If you can continue entertaining the audience. And you're uh, going to look for the um, the segment where this lady talked about her fighting uh, the educational. Yeah, it's on the Steve Hilton show. And uh, for a moment here, I, I, well, I watched. We'll have her call in. Just find out her name, and we'll have her call No, in. I want to actually play it on the air right now. Okay. If I can find it, because the clip is only six minutes, and quite frankly, um, it's very thought-provoking because it's right down my alley. For well, those of you who have it. call, and then we'll play the clip, and then she can comment on it. And then, you, as you know, we have other uh, educational reformers, like from Ed Choice, that we were waiting to line up to have him call in, so... Absolutely. We can do, do a show on uh, educational reform. Uh, well, he, um, Bill was uh, uh, 
was saddened by the fact that it takes so long to do things in Tallahassee, that we've had majorities for 20 years, yeah. and they can't believe they haven't changed this law. And I was saying to myself, hmm, her name is uh, Rebecca Federicks, and unfortunately, I can't, um, I got to now uh, Google her. She wrote a book called uh, Fighting Goliath, I think it is, Taking on Goliath. Um, and uh, quite frankly, on the educational establishment, she apparently took them on. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And um, we got to find out here. So I want to be able to play this. And it was only six minutes, but Katrina was there, and I haven't gotten a response from Katrina her. Pearson. I mean, yeah, Katrina Pearson and Charlie Kirk. They were both uh, there. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, give me a moment here. Because I'm trying to put this on my phone so I can put it right into the microphone. And since uh, you call it uh, balloon, it's one of those things. We're going to go here and watch this. Uh, He's got his own, well, he's got an online version too. So you're letting me down. You mean you have an online version of this? Uh, yes, I do. Of this it's, it's right on the Fox News site because uh, I was I wanted to make sure I heard and heard it all because I was afraid that I didn't hear the entire segment. Mm-hmm. And um, well, I'll, I'll look her up and see if we can call her, have her call in. It's not he, it's she that I want to listen to. It's him. I want to get on. His show. Steve Hilton. Steve Hilton's Revolution Show. Absolutely. So as soon as I um, I saw that Katrina was on there, and I'm going to see if um, you, she's all about school choice and why and why and why. And I'm saying, you know what? You haven't been in the grass. You haven't been in the grass. When you know what I've been through. Mm-hmm. So once I realized that I really... Unfortunately, we have to listen to their ad, so I'm doing free advertising for Fox News, and uh, I think it's pretty tacky, but listen to... Welcome back. If family and parenting, as Katrina quite rightly points out, is the first step in mending our broken society, fixing our school system is the second. Our next guest has a great book out called Standing Up to Goliath, where she makes the argument that the only hope for America's schools is putting the power of school choice back in the hands of parents and teachers, not state and national unions. Hello? California public school teacher. Really? Friedrichs joins us around the table. And Rebecca, I should point out, as I mentioned at the end of the previous um, segment, uh, your name is on that incredibly important Supreme Court case, that where the Friedrichs case. You are Friedrichs of the Friedrichs case. That's that, me. That dealt with all these issues. I'd love you to start with, because we talked about school choice last week, that just just the power of the teacher unions and also the PTA, Parent Teachers Associations. This is right down my alley. In the process of blocking something that we all think, I'm sure, could be so beneficial for, right. for, for children and parents. Right. So there is only one reason America does not have school choice teachers unions, state and national teachers unions, not the local ones, the nice teachers who care about kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And the state and national teachers unions have so completely bullied the PTA 
that in the 70s, they asked me to resign PTA as PTA president of neutrality. Mm -hmm. So the PTA is no longer permitted to take any stance in opposition to the teachers unions. That's why you see teachers, I mean, uh, parents out striking with teachers. Mm -hmm. That's why you see parents very confused about school choice. So they can't actually um, get the kind of changes they want because they, they feel like the teachers are going to be resisting them and they want to stay friendly with the... So it's at the school level and the community level, that's where it really operates. Well, it's actually more subversive than that. So the state and national teachers unions are so deceitful mm -hmm. that they use all these very clever messaging campaigns mm -hmm. to actually convince parents that if you go for school choice, then their community school is going to get gypped, going to lose that's money. That's exactly what they did at the K-8 Center. When you say go for school choice, I don't know, vote for someone. That's exactly the what they did at the K-8 Charter schools in your area, so exactly. that you have no choice. Right. Or when I was came out for example, like she's we describing. have had several times on our ballot vouchers, mm -hmm. and so they'll That's convince the parents who would actually be better off with a voucher or an education savings account or something like that mm -hmm. to vote against it because they're so deceptive. What was really interesting to me is that how about the, converting the, the actual school to charter? Kind of gentle thing, not like the teachers' unions, but they've become just as. Uh, much part of the Excuse me, yes. I mean, I'm corrected. I hate the word charter for that conversion. Fund the Democrats. Well, they do, and I, so maybe it's time we have a national discussion with a giant platform to talk about school choice because it's extremely important, particularly in minority communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, to what Rebecca's done, I mean, she's really been the embodiment of how all politics not only start local, but all it takes is one person to go out there and do the right thing. And as you mentioned, she ended up on a Supreme Court case. Um, but we need more oh, of that. We need we more parents, down. more teachers doing these kinds of things so that, you know, people like us the can Chris, talk about the them Fernandez and get Crystal the word out to the masses. My attempt to do uh, just but the same. these institutions fund the left. People are yes. actually funding their own demise. They're funding the destruction of education and indoctrinating their children with their own money. Yeah, and by the way, we'll get to a bit, bit of that in Looney Left later in the show, but Charlie. Two, two quick things. Number one, President, thanks to President Trump's surprise victory, your case inevitably got restructured as the Janus decision was one of the most important wins. And President Trump doesn't get enough credit, and you don't get enough credit for putting Gorsuch on the court to replace Scalia. Because if Hillary Clinton would have won that election, that swing vote would have went in the incorrect direction and the unconstitutional public funding of teacher unions would have continued. The second thing is this. If President Trump focused on five words, school choice for black kids, it is an undeniable message because the Democrats have just kept these poor communities permanently poor. And it's a cartel, Steve. It is no different than the worst mob family that you used to grow up thinking mm -hmm. existed in the inner cities. Think Godfather, but worse. That This is exactly what is going on in our education and your system. political point, I mean, it, that really played out in Florida, didn't it? With Ron DeSantis, right. he won 20, nearly 20% yeah. Yeah. of the Where of am the I going wrong? If all these dots are connected and, and, that, the and yet the amendment is not happening. Have, look at someone like Senator Cory Booker who used to be a huge advocate for right. school choice. He actually served on the board of the Alliance for School Choice with Betsy DeVos mm -hmm. and then threw her under the bus when she threw out the confirmation process. And now as he's running for president, obviously he wants the money with teacher unions and is now trying to appeal to them. But this is someone... Cory Booker also stole $100 million choice, from Zuckerberg. Uh, pushing for it as well. So it just demonstrates, one, just the hypocrisy with him, and then, two, that power that teachers' unions have over particularly Democratic candidates. So, Rebecca, what do you think, um, in terms of looking looking ahead and trying to sort of move this forward, what, what should be the priorities? How should we be thinking about this? All of America needs to adopt every single teacher they know. 
Because according to National Education Association internal studies, the majority of teachers lean conservative. So you have all these teachers funding the demise, as you said, the demise of their own beliefs, the demise of their own political beliefs, the demise of their own classroom. I can't disagree with the dismantling of a teacher's union, but that's not the issue. Teachers are in crisis. We can't teach anymore. Parents have to be in control of the money that funds the school. Teacher union is the reason. They're behind it. They're behind it all. They're funding every divisive problem in this country and in our classrooms. So what do you mean to talk? Where's my specific about a, if the parents watching? Do I get a plaque? Want to do something? What should they actually do? To adopt a teacher? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked. Okay. So I wrote that book, Standing Up to Goliath. Yes. In that book, I address through very engaging stories, personal stories of teachers. Every lie teachers have been told. Mm -hmm. And I show them how the unions have actually been controlling us through a culture of fear, using fear, intimidation, isolation, and ignorance to control us. And so if parents will just put their arms around teachers and hand them a copy of the book and walk them through it and stay with them. We even have on our website for kidsandcountry.org an adopt-a-teacher flyer they can look at. Uh, that sounds great. For kidsandcountry.org. I like the sound of that. It sounds very positive and practical. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank Okay, so teachers have a very high turnover rate too. I think that's they get discouraged and frustrated with dealing with the union and the bureaucracy, the administration. Yeah, and then they look at their health care and they say, "I can't quit. This is the best health care on the planet." Well, yeah. Now, I see that she can be an asset to what I'm trying to do, but if she thinks that hugging a teacher is going to solve the problem, I'm sorry. The last thing that 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 we need to do right now is to hug the teacher. What we need is to be their boss. In other words, boss the teacher. Yeah, right. And so that the principal is empowered to also hire and fire the teacher. Right. Now, in the case of converting a school to a parent guardianship school, it would be the parents forming a coalition, either by election or by appointment, maybe the first would be appointed, in other words, the people who actually got the vote and got, uh, who forced the vote. The The first governing board will most likely be the close-knit group of people appointed by the people who win. Who initiated the... Tell our audience that in Florida there's a uh, legislation that allows parents to trigger an election to take over management of a local public school. Hello! However, the current legislation requires approval not only by the parents but also by the teachers in separate ballots in separate ballots so the teachers will always be able to block it so veto mac is trying to uh do since 2013 get an amendment so that the teacher's veto is removed right so So they vote collectively with the parents or not at all or not at all i would say because that's really not their business none of those teachers have voted against us in 2013 so that's what we're hoping for and we're looking for some legislative support and maybe some legislative sponsors. How are we doing on that? Jennifer Sullivan, who I've not heard Sullivan, from. Where is she from? She is from the Mount Dora area of Florida. Where is that? Uh, a little bit north of uh, Sarasota. Okay. Maybe south of Sarasota, providing that I got my coordinates correctly. I've been waiting all this month for a call from their office. I leave voicemails and crickets, so it might be that someone's gotten in my Way. And this is called a Parent Guardianship School? On parentguardianshipschool.com, you can see and read about my experience in 2013 and what I'm suggesting and the actual law as written 
that we're suggesting, the amendment itself, you can see it underlined there on the website. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Thad Altman uh, is also in the House. He Thad used to, Altman? Where's, where's he from? He's from Cape Canaveral. Okay. Uh, he used to be in the Senate, but he's termed out, so he went to the House and won again. He would probably be another co-sponsor. And I really don't have anybody in the Senate. That's what I'm asking anyone who hears this show to reach out to us here at the Concrete Conservative. Go to the website. You can get my personal phone number there. I'm reluctant to give my cell phone number here mm-hmm. only because, you know, there's oppositions to this show as well. So I don't need to be harassed on a daily basis. But uh, uh, on my cell phone because I got enough with just robocalls, you know. So here on the side, uh, you can leave a message here on our uh, on our studio 305-365-777. And if you're toll-free, if you want to call us toll-free, 1-844-645-9773. 1-844-645-9773, which is actually WSQF, so 645-WSQF. You can leave me a message. I will reach out to you immediately, and we can start working on this because, like our previous caller said, Rob, or Bob, or Bill, Bill. Bill Hurley. Bill, Bill Hurley, sorry. Uh, it takes a long time to move, move things. What's really unfortunate about what Tallahassee. What's really unfortunate about my case is that I self-funded it. I was by myself, and I never joined a parent group. So I'm not of any special interest, and I have nothing to gain. Zero. All I want is for parents to control the budgets of a school, save the surpluses, and renovate schools from within, and see the school bonds be extremely uh, reduced for the average taxpayer who doesn't even have children in school anymore. Because if you start renovating your schools from within, and the firing, hiring and firing of teachers you'll see the performance sky rise. And you'll also see socialism organically being weeded out of the textbooks. Why? Because guess what? If you're not buying textbooks and you're reading just the classics, kids will go back to the origins of education. Half of our uh, local taxes go to the Board of Education. Absolutely. And And we're not getting our money anymore. That's what Katrina said in the the video. She said that they're funding the indoctrination of your children. Thousand students in Dade County. You are paying for the indoctrination of your children when half of your property taxes go to the school district. And in these large school districts like Miami, which is the fourth largest, yep. the, the the teachers union came after me. The PTA yeah, came after me. Active, yeah. Miami-Dade PTA, they all demanded I resign in the middle of this election, or actually the week before the election, to kill the messenger. And they succeeded. 83 to nothing as teachers and 531 to 31 as parents. Yeah, well, the parents need to show more courage. Well, if, if they weren't South Americans, they had no idea. And they well, were allowed to vote? They were allowed to vote. They only had children in the school. You can vote. That's another thing that should have been praised. Instead, it was admonished. And I told them so live um, in, a, in, a, in the cafeteria the, the night they asked me to resign by vote. And I said, look, you know, I'm using a Florida law. Um, I don't have any... Uh, any desires to pass this motion uh, as a school board, as a PTA board? I wasn't looking for your votes. I was firing a trigger letter, and the election's next week. Having me resign only kills the messenger, and we'll never knock down this school. And we have a million dollars worth of surpluses here. So in five years, we'd have $5 million. By now, we would have already had the matching funds 
for the $9 million I had, I had previously gotten from a developer in 2011, which ended up being the money that was spent on Mast Academy. So the high school. So guess what? It was all part of a big master plan that I succeeded at what I did and my community failed at what they did. And part of it was what Rebecca Frederick was saying. They come after you hard and they ruin... It's a money issue for them. That's their rice bowl, so, as the Chinese say. Can you say that again while we... It's and, their rice bowl, as the Chinese say. That's the end of the concrete conservatives, the rice bowl. There you go. Thank you, Mr. Bossy. Thank you, Bill. Bill Hurley. Hurley. And thank National you. Federation of Independent Business. And thank you for staying free, my friends. This is the end of the Concrete Conservative Show. And I believe we're, we're staying tuned for the statues and stories. Yep. So here we go, my folks. Stay free. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.